Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It is Thursday, September 26th, and this is a big week for this podcast, is it not, Rebecca? You know, it is. Normally, I only see the word readout referred to in the context of this podcast or biotech readouts. But this week, everyone is using it to describe the document at the center of the impeachment inquiry into the president of the United States. Impeachment of the president? What are you talking about? Well, Adam, I would refer you to Twitter on that question. People there have a lot of opinions. And on that note, we've got a lot to talk about this week. Right. So amid increasing reports of a mysterious lung illness tied to vaping, there's a complicated scandal growing around the controversial e-cigarettes and other types of vape products. Stats' Megan Thielking joins us to explain. Spitkit maker 23andMe is getting into the business of recruiting patients for clinical trials. We'll talk about all the fascinating implications. And finally, stat reporter Sharon Begley joins us to talk about a desperately ill man who is demanding to be crispered. But first, a word from our sponsor. Bringing a new drug to market is getting tougher and tougher. At Cineos Health, we're changing the game. The result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health, Cineos Health has one goal in mind, shortening the distance from lab to life. Visit CineosHealth.com forward slash podcast. That's S-Y-N-E-O-S health.com forward slash podcast. There's breaking news in America's vaping crisis. Late today, a death was reported in Georgia. That is now 10 linked to vaping nationwide. And the CEO of the nation's largest e-cigarette company, Juul, stepped down today. Don Daler has- Over the last couple of years or so, the perception of vaping has gone from a white knight technology that might help people quit tobacco to a public health problem with ties to a frightening disease outbreak. All of that came to a head this week with news about vaping disease, rumors of a federal crackdown and a shakeup at the top of Juul. Stats Megan Thilking has been on top of this story and she joins us to talk about it. Megan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, good to be here. So let's start maybe with the public health worries writ large. Earlier this summer, the CDC disclosed that it had tracked cases of a vaping-related disease, and it has since reported hundreds more diagnoses and several deaths. What do we know about this mysterious illness? Yeah, so like you said, hundreds of people have been sickened with what health officials are calling a vaping-associated lung illness. They're super acute lung injuries. They're making people really sick. Some people have been in the ICU. They've been put on respiratory support. There have been deaths tied to these illnesses. A lot of the cases have been in young men. But health officials aren't really sure what's causing them or whether there's even one cause. So question for you, Megan. We use the term vaping as a catch-all term, but there's an important distinction here, right? On one hand, there's products containing THC, which is the active ingredient in marijuana. And then on the other hand, there's products that just contain the nicotine found in tobacco. So is one of the two more correlated with these cases of vaping-related illness? Totally. I think that's an important distinction. And I think it's something that has caused a lot of confusion around this storyline. Essentially, there are two separate public health storylines happening here. One has been going on for months and months, which is that people are very worried about the rising popularity of e-cigarettes among young people in particular. That has to do in part with young people who are using e-cigarettes to consume nicotine, right? 
there's separately a public health storyline around these vaping-related illnesses, which have started appearing just in the last couple months. The bulk of those cases have been in people who were vaping THC, but not all of the cases were. Some people said they only vaped nicotine. When health officials have noted that, they're quick to say, of course, people are sometimes hesitant to disclose that they've been vaping THC. So I think there's been a little bit of confusion around the overlap between those two things. But the bulk of the vaping-related lung illnesses have been in people who are vaping THC, whereas the public health concern around vaping writ large in young people is broader than that. So, Megan, are people getting sick from Juul e-cigarettes? The CDC has not identified any single product, uh, even any single substance that people are vaping that is causing these illnesses. So, no, Juul has not been tied to this outbreak in any way. I think their name gets thrown in the mix a lot just because they control the bulk of the e-cigarette market and they've come under fire, sort of become a target for e-cigarette use, especially among young people. And people also use the term juuling as a synonym for vaping, even if they're not using juul products, which probably contributes to it too. Right, exactly. I think it all gets sort of conflated in a way that's not exactly accurate. So let's talk about the FDA, which was also in the news this week. As recently as 2017, the agency seemed to view e-cigarettes as a safer, at least more advisable alternative to actually smoking. That is not its stance today. How have things evolved? It's uh, a complicated regulatory picture, but I'll try to break it down clearly. Basically, the FDA has authority to regulate cigarettes and smokeless tobacco. And a couple years ago, they decided, you know what, e-cigarettes count too. So by that coin, e-cigarettes would need to go through the FDA before they can be sold. But in 2017, the agency released this big plan to curb the levels of nicotine in regular cigarettes. And at the time, they saw e-cigarettes as a really good option or a potentially good option for people who were trying to quit smoking, especially as nicotine levels in cigarettes were going down. So they made the choice not to flex their regulatory power and act broadly on e-cigarettes. But that is, like you said, changing now. The agency is working to finalize this guidance that would effectively force a lot of flavored e-cigarette products off the market until they could be reviewed by the FDA. The acting FDA commissioner was testifying at a congressional hearing yesterday, and he said that they are going to release that final guidance in the next few weeks. So we mentioned Juul, which is easily the most recognizable brand name in the vaping industry. It's actually become a verb. Juuling. What kind of week is that company having, Megan? Yeah, it's been a big week for Juul. They announced that their CEO is stepping down and being replaced by an executive from Altria, which owns part of Juul. Um, But they also announced they're suspending all of their advertising, which is something that they've invested very heavily in. They're ending a campaign that had been criticized. It was called the Make the Switch campaign uh, as promoting e-cigarettes as a safer option than conventional cigarettes. The company also announced that they are not going to lobby against those changes I mentioned that the FDA is working on. And this is all happening after a really tough few months for Juul. Uh, There are state-level and even store-level crackdowns on vape sales. Uh, They're the subject of several investigations. And they also got a pretty stern warning letter from the FDA earlier this month about their marketing claims. So how long are you expecting this to last, Megan? Did the company give any indication about how long it will wait before it starts advertising and lobbying again? That's a great question. And I think that it's something that we're going to have to wait and see how it shakes out. Juul didn't say how long they're going to suspend their advertising. In their statement, they did say that they are conducting a review of their policies and procedures right now. 
So what is the next thing you're watching for in this saga, Megan? There's obviously a lot to keep track of. One thing that's interesting, I think there's been a lot of attention paid to the potential health risks of these black market products that aren't sold in retail stores, uh, including knockoffs or counterfeit products that are being shipped here from overseas. At that hearing I mentioned yesterday, Ned Sharpless of the FDA said the agency is working to look at international mail facilities and see what kinds of vaping products are coming into the U.S. So I definitely think it'll be interesting to see what they find through that process and what kinds of actions they might take there. Megan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So as Lizzo nicely set up for us with that memefied lyric, we are now going to talk about 23andMe and its latest expansion into drug development. So you probably already knew that the consumer genetics giant has been mining its massive database for therapeutic targets and also inking deals with drug makers. But here's something you might not know. Over the past year and a half, 23andMe has been quietly building out a business around recruiting patients for clinical trials. And that brings us to Thursday when 23andMe announced that it's expanding that business by partnering with a health tech startup to connect its customers with nearby trial sites. So as Rebecca, you explained in a story on Stat, 23andMe has a lot of advantages in this world, most notably a massive database of genetic data from its millions of customers that could make it a really interesting player in this business. And Rebecca, why did I not know that 23andMe recruits for clinical trials? Yeah, I did not know this either until I did this story this week. They've kept it really under wraps. And to be fair, this is new. I talked to an executive at 23andMe, and she told me that the company only started recruiting for clinical trials in the past 18 months or so. You know, in the early days, they just didn't have a large enough database. They didn't have enough customers for it to make sense. But they have a lot now. They have 10 million customers. And so I think they're in a place now where they think they could really tap into this market. And then there's kind of another reason this isn't widely known, which is that they won't say a lot about it. 23andMe wouldn't answer my questions about how many customers it's helped enroll into clinical trials. They also wouldn't tell me how many studies they've recruited for, or even the business model here, which is whether they're charging study sponsors to do this recruiting. So I think we all kind of understand pretty well 23andMe's base business of selling these spit kits that you then send back to them and they'll tell you information about your ancestry and your health. But what does this new business model look like in practice? So 23andMe's customers uh, can, if they want to, opt into research. And that can mean taking surveys on the company's website. And when customers take those surveys, uh, they might answer questions about diseases that they have or other medical information and demographic information. And so 23andMe is using that survey data to email customers with recommendations for clinical studies that might be appropriate for them. And that's personalized based on their medical conditions, their age and gender, and of course, in some cases, their DNA. So in recent months, 23andMe has recruited for studies in the realm of Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ADHD, liver disease, a whole host of different conditions. So Rebecca, I'm curious, does this get close to sort of offering medical advice if you're sort of recommending clinical trials to people? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I will say I have not talked to lawyers about it. But my sense is that this kind of advertising, so to speak, for clinical trials 
is already something that exists. There's already an industry built around it. And so I wouldn't expect this to fall into the realm of uh, the sort of thing that that only doctors um, have the purview to do. So one thing that stood out to me, Rebecca, in your story is you likened this move by 23andMe as basically getting into the multi-billion dollar world of personalized digital advertising. Can you explain that a little? Yeah. So when you think about personalized ads, you usually think about companies like Facebook and Google, right? They charge all sorts of companies for targeted ads based on what you click on online. But in some ways, 23andMe is kind of getting into this business too, except their model is charging drug makers, potentially, to uh, serve up what are essentially ads for medical research. And so it's an interesting twist on a model that we've seen make a huge amount of money for other Silicon Valley players. So could this also be a marketing pitch to 23andMe's customers? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So I should say up front that the 23andMe executive I talked to said that they've yet to do any ads or marketing to their customers around this line of business. But there's kind of an obvious and fascinating pitch, right? So the pitch right now is we can find disease risks lurking in your genes. We can tell you what's in your DNA. But this gives them the opportunity to make another pitch too. Not only can we tell you what's in your DNA, but we may also offer a route to help you access experimental drugs and cutting edge research that could potentially help you and others with your condition. Yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting in a conversation that I know we've had, I'm pretty sure on this podcast, but definitely in reality, about the potential like diminishing returns for consumer genetic tests as a business. There's all sorts of signs that, you know, there's a wave of early adopters who will buy into these things and then maybe things kind of peter out. And there've been some signs from the uh, commercial results of Illumina, which provides a lot of the technology to these companies. And so it is interesting if, Rebecca, as you said, this is maybe in part an escalation of the sort of Coke versus Pepsi battle that 23andMe has with Ancestry. And if in the future they could brand themselves as exactly what you just described, as a service provider that could also lead to you getting results on the information that they provide you versus just learning it. Rebecca, I know that you said that 23andMe didn't really want to talk to you about their business model around this clinical trials kind of offshoot. But, you know, do you think that the drug companies are going to buy this pitch, sort of essentially say, forget the old CRO model and and let's recruit 23andMe customers for clinical trials? Yeah, so only time will tell. But I think it's a pretty fascinating pitch, right? These CROs that traditionally help recruit patients for clinical trials do not have anywhere near the data that 23andMe does on millions of customers. And I think it's clearly a space that's kind of, this sounds very grossly Silicon Valley of me, but like ripe for disruption, right? Like this is a broken model. So many clinical trials don't meet their enrollment targets. So many patients never participate in clinical research. It's clearly a problem. It'll be fascinating to watch if 23andMe can use those spit kits as a route to helping solve it. And any thought here on, you know, one of the criticisms of clinical trial participation in this country is that, you know, there's not a lot of racial or gender diversity. Is there a potential there that it could help solve that problem, making clinical trial participation more diverse? Yeah, that's a really interesting question that I hadn't really thought about too much. But I do think that it would depend, as you pointed out, on kind of the diversity of 23andMe's customer base. I do think there is potential, particularly with this new partnership with a startup called TrialSpark that's designed to let these customers enroll in clinical trial sites that are closer to where they live. So in theory, 
patients who are from rural areas might be poorer, not be able to fly to the elite academic medical centers where so much of medical research is conducted, could get involved in trials this way. So I think there's definitely potential there. Next up, we're going to bring you the story of Malikar Vorizic. He is a 43-year-old legal researcher and IT consultant from Southern California who suffers from a skin disease so rare and mysterious that it doesn't have a name or a cure. Vorizic fears for his life, and with doctors seemingly unable to help him, he's taken medical matters into his own hands. Through his own research, Vorizic believes he's found a gene in nature that could save him. Delivering that gene into his own cells, however, is something he cannot do on his own. So for the past several months... Verizic has sent emails to scientists, biotech companies, and biohackers as far away as Japan. He's been asking, pleading really, for someone to CRISPR him. And his hope is that someone who has knowledge and access to CRISPR or some other gene editing technology will come to his aid. Joining us to discuss Verizon's story is stat reporter Sharon Begley. Sharon, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. So Sharon, to start, tell us more about the mysterious skin disease that Verizon has. Since he was young, he developed lesions on his skin at seemingly the least little bit exposure to sunlight. He would develop moles, many of them precancerous. And once he realized how frequently this was happening, he began taking precautions against the sunlight. He slathers himself with SPF 60. He rarely goes out without a hat and even a black umbrella. When he was a child, he insisted on working the graveyard shift so that he wouldn't even have to commute in daylight. And his concern is that even with all these precautions, skin lesions, seemingly pre-malignant moles, keep erupting on his skin. And as you wrote in the story, Verizon is becoming increasingly worried that this disease will eventually kill him because one of these moles, if left unattended, might transform into melanoma. Exactly. He's worried that he'll miss one, you know, it will be someplace that's less visible or that he won't be able to get medical help soon enough. So he really thinks that his life is in danger. So Sharon, what is the gene that Verizon believes can cure him? So, as you said, he has been combing the medical literature for several years now, and he recently came across a study from Japan where researchers, inspired, if that's the right word, by the Fukushima nuclear plant disaster, researched tardigrades, which are affectionately known as water bears. They're tiny little sea creatures, which are extremely and famously resilient to extremes of temperature and other things. They're also extremely resistant to radiation, including the radiation of solar wavelengths. And so what the researchers found is a specific gene, they named it DSUP, which protects against radiation so that the tardigrades can be exposed to eight times standard sunlight radiation with no DNA damage. So Verizon has decided that DSUP, this tardigrade gene, if inserted into his presumably skin cells, he doesn't need it in every organ, obviously, could also protect him from sunlight. And so that kind of leads us to his very unusual request. Verizon wants someone to CRISPR him in this fashion such that he would have that gene. Is that feasible? Does that make any scientific sense? 
So CRISPR does not give you a gene from a completely different species. So Verizek sort of grasped that, but he's sort of latched on to the idea of CRISPR with the, you know, just endless publicity it gets, and therefore has been asking scientists, as you said, companies, academics, if they would please CRISPR him. And he copied me on one of those requests, which is how I connected to him. And so I explained to him that CRISPR was very unlikely to be his salvation, probably what he's talking about. And again, this is probably in the realm of fantasy, but that he would somehow want to receive the tardigrade gene, much as, you know, for instance, um, tomatoes have genes from Antarctic fish, which keep the tomatoes from freezing. So he wants something that is really called genetic engineering. He wants a, a gene from an entirely different species, which is not to say that that's an easier thing to do than crispering oneself. But he, as you said in the opening, Adam, just wants somebody to use genetic techniques to save him from the sun. So as you mentioned, Sharon, Verizek reached out to you the way he did with the, the CRISPR researchers. Well, what was that outreach like? What did he say to you? So he said, I noticed that you've written a few stories about CRISPR, which is definitely an understatement. And he said, this is what I've been asking people to, to help me with. So I you know, simply replied saying, huh, that's an interesting quest. Um, how's it going? And you know, we took it from there. He's telling everybody he contacts, if you would please do this for me, I would sign Every waiver, you know, under the sun, no matter what happens to me or what might happen to me, I really want you to do this. And he says, if nobody helps me, I'm probably going to die from melanoma. But if I die in a, you know, N of 1 CRISPR or other genetic technology experiment, at least my life will have been, you know, given in the interest of science. So Sharon, you made a really interesting observation in your story that I want to talk about more. You wrote that it was perhaps inevitable that the right to try campaign to give patients experimental drugs before FDA approval, that of course was enshrined in a law last year, would sort of combine with unbounded optimism about the potential curative power of genome editing technology. Right. So we know that um, Verizek is not the only person um, who is reaching out to scientists asking if some very experimental, untested, un-FDA approved approach can help them or in many cases their children. Um, so Right to Try, I think, just conveyed the message to people that science is slow, drug development is slow, and if you are desperate, if your life is in danger, if you feel your life is in danger, then there are options open to you. So he is one of not a lot at this point, but, you know, ethicists I spoke to said that he's probably the leading edge of something um, that we're going to see a lot more of. And do you feel like patients with rare, untreatable diseases have already come to expect too much from CRISPR? I think that the coverage of CRISPR, you know, much as we try to make it grounded in the evidence and not overpromising. Um, yes, the message is out there that this is a new kind of genetic technology never seen before, easy to use, anybody can do it. So it's, it's those two elements, not only that it's incredibly promising, but the anybody can do it part of it. And that's why um, Verizek and others are reaching not only to established scientists like those in Japan who did the tardigrade work and to biotech companies, but to the, the biohacker community, the DIY communities, asking them, you know, so you say that, you know, these techniques should be available. We don't have to wait for regulators to say yes, et cetera. So here I am, you know, give me your best shot. And how are all these communities you referred to companies, scientists, biohackers responding to this kind of request, this kind of email lobbying from patients like Verizek? 
Most have ignored him, he told me. He has gotten responses from a few, including from a biotech company that said, boy, that's an interesting request, but we really just deal with, you know, mainstream research and we go through the regulatory process, et cetera. So I'm sorry, we can't help you. This is not in our business model. A couple of scientists have tried to correct him about what CRISPR does. But again, he is not wed to CRISPR so much as to any genetic technology that can help him. He has, however, made contact with a few DIY biotech groups, um, and he hopes to be traveling to the Pacific Northwest to meet with one of them. Um, so I reached out to, gosh, more than a dozen such groups to ask if they had been getting similar requests. Most did not respond to me, so I wish I could, but I can't tell you how often they get these pleas. And others have told him, no, we don't want to get in trouble. We're not going to CRISPR you. So kind of on that point, does it feel like there's an air of inevitability to this that you know, if not Verizon himself, then some patient in a similar situation might find a yes on the other end of one of those emails and will have kind of DIY genomic medicine happening? Yes, I think some patient or patients are going to get somebody to do this. I think he or someone may will very likely find a lab, probably not a company, some group that will at least try to give him what he wants. Well, Sharon, keep us posted on your reporting here. And thanks for joining us. Thank you. does it for another episode of the read out loud thank you to heisen Demonado who produced this week's episode matthew orr and Alyssa ambrose are our senior producers and as always rick burke is our executive producer and a regular plea that we would love to hear from you it really does make a difference when you tell us what you like what you didn't like and which guests you'd like to see on future episodes and you can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com And of course, if you like what we do, tell a friend and please do leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.